Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. Good morning. Welcome to Talkback Gardening, wherever you are joining us from in Adelaide and around South Australia. And our special guest gardener is not John Lamb, who is actually doing some landscaping in his own garden this weekend. It is the lovely Brett Draper. Brett, uh, lovely to have you aboard today. And we're going to have a bit of a focus in the next few minutes on growing our native Australian bush foods. We are, Deb, absolutely. And uh, there are lots out there. And uh, I guess we're going to look at some of the ones that are best to grow in our garden um, and actually how to grow them. Oh, I'm looking forward to that greatly with Mike Quarmby. Uh, also, just a reminder that uh, John Lamb's tomato survey is underway, so go to the Good Gardening newsletter, sign up and fill that out if you would like to provide some information to him and we'll certainly feed back what we've learnt from this tomato season to you. I have a couple of ABC Gardening Australia March magazines to give away a little bit later in the program, but of course we'd love your questions. So if you'd like to jump in the queue, you can do so by calling in on 1300 2 891. If you'd like to text a comment through, we'd love to receive them on 0467 922 891. I think I'll leave you to introduce Mike for us, Brett. Sure. Yeah. Now, look, uh, Gail and Mike Quarmby have spent a large part of their lives growing and propagating Australian uh, bush food plants. Now, they've done this on a commercial scale where they were supplying around 800 chefs around the country, which I think is just amazing. They're now retired, I guess if you can call it that, from their commercial venture. And Mike and Gail now propagate a wide range of varieties for the domestic uh, market and they're available um, through independent garden centres. Um, and during this time, their journeys have taken them far, awi- far and wide across the country and working with um, local Indigenous communities to seek out and select some of the best varieties to provide maximum production and flavour. And many of them have been hand-selected by Mike himself for performance. With all of that in mind, I'd like to now say a very good morning to Mike and welcome to Talkback Gardening. Yes, hello. hello. Hello, we've got you. Good. <laughs> good morning, Brett. <laughs> good morning, good morning, Mike. Now, um, Mike, there are many, many different types of um, Australian um, food plants out there. But, but starting from the beginning, what what is an Australian native bush food? Um, I guess the definition is um, native food plants that have been used by Aboriginal people for millennium. Uh, and they um, uh, have become very much the the mainstay of the diet of Aboriginal people. So in all our travels, uh, working with... Uh, oh, and by the way, we, we planted about 500,000 bush food plants out on 30 Aboriginal communities right across the centre, mainly the desert areas. Um, and in that period, it became very obvious to us that the whole subsistence of Aboriginal people was based on the native food plants. And uh, so what we've been sitting on uh, since white uh, settlement has been this enormous uh, resource, which really has been underutilised, particularly in the in the case of uh, uh, climate change and uh, shortage of water and all these sorts of things, that the plants themselves are ideally suited for those conditions, you know. Mm. And and my how how have they evolved over that time? Like has has there been an impact since since I um I I guess um settlement um of the country has that impacted on on some of these these varieties growing in the wild? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, particularly in the uh, 
um, clearing of land, uh, the stocking with uh, the feral animals, of course, ca cattle, sheep, uh, etc. Um, one of the first things that uh, um, sheep, cattle, and uh, horses, donkeys, etc., will eat is is the yummy bush foods uh, that happen to be in in uh, the ground, and uh, so consequently, that a lot of these species have become extinct or very close to extinction, and that's been one of my pet uh, <laughs> focuses on is to be uh, multiplying these rare uh, species and get them into production so they become more commonplace and therefore reducing the chance of uh, extinction yeah and and so have, have we've said so some of those varieties have now been um lost forever have they or or, or is there maybe some isolated I, pockets that might still be there um isolated pockets that might still be there is probably closer to the point um and uh that that is an ongoing work uh, that several people that i know are, are focusing on at the moment so is finding those, multiplying them. Um, it, it's still, the, the door hasn't shut on, on the majority. Mm. Now, from a home gardener's perspective, Mike, um, how mm. actual easy are they to grow? And, and I guess then, and to propagate as well. Is it something that is achievable for the home gardener? Oh, very much so. Yeah, it's not a problem. Um, one of the, I guess, the, the difficult things in talking about this is that there's about 2,500 plus um, native food plants um, across Australia. So where do you start? So, you know, what we've, we've I guess, focused on with the promotion of uh, growing these things is, is a few. And uh, we have about 25 species available through the uh, local nurseries, the independent nurseries that we supply. Um, and then narrowing that down um, to perhaps a half a dozen to a dozen, um, it's, uh, they're all very, very growable in the Adelaide area. We have tended to focus on the plants that originated from temperate zones across Australia and the desert because that suits Adelaide's hot, dry climate. And uh, that's a very important part of it. Um, in in that, uh, I could spin off, um, you know, half a dozen to a dozen varieties that are probably the most likely. Is that uh, going to be useful? Yeah. Look, um, um, I was I, I know that there are there are a lot there. So I was going to say to you, if you can pick five or six varieties um, that you think would be appropriate um, for 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 home gardeners um, to try, that would be excellent, Mike. Okay. Um, well, the first one uh, is one that I actually introduced to the market uh, back in the mid 90s, um, it, uh, which is an edible selection of saltbush. And uh, it wasn't previously used as a, a leafy vegetable before that because it hadn't been selected for palatability. And uh, so, you know, that's, that's made it a very, very big and important uh, food. Uh, it can be cut back uh, really severely several times a year and live for up to a hundred years. So it's actually, uh, old man saltbush can be called a small tree if it's left for long enough. The, the leaves are extremely palatable, useful in stir fries, uh, salads, uh, dried, and when they're dried, they're, they're, the flakes come off and they are um, salty and tasty, a bit like... Uh, 
salted pistachio nuts with uh, with a herby edge. So they're used on potatoes and in rice and uh, mm. in bread and all those sorts of things. So but, salt bush is number one. Yeah, and sorry, sorry Mike, can I just I just jump in there? How did you discover a more palatable or edible salt bush? Was it through accident or was it you know because there are there's obviously salt bush and salt bush by the sounds of it? Oh, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> um, when uh, during the 80s, uh, I was producing uh, up to two and a half million saltbush a year, seedling saltbush a year for the pastoral uh, areas uh, as a major uh, tool in removing salt out of degraded country and, um, and of course, as a fodder for sheep and cattle. Um, but what we discovered was that sheep and cattle were only eating about one in every five plants initially. And uh, it became obvious to me that there was something wrong with the selection of seed. We went out and realised we were taking seed from areas across the pastoral zone that had been overgrazed, really heavily overgrazed, uh, you know, between the uh, 1880s and the 1930s, Kidman and Co, etc. Um, and they, uh, they, and we were taking that seed. And of course, the most palatable saltbush varieties were extinct. And so I went on a big journey and uh, on an island in the Lachlan River that had never been grazed, I found some ancient old man saltbush that was very palatable. And then another lot in the fenced off area of the Broken Hill Mines that had been fenced off for 100 years plus. Um, <clears throat> then across those produced about 150,000 seedlings and then selected back from those. And one day... I realised that my palate was the same as sheep and cattle. If I liked it, so did they. And I was sitting on the loo one day and went, aha, you know, <laughs> as you do. All my greatest inspirations have come from that room. But anyway, <laughs> um, so I then sent off samples of the, the, the prize best selections to CSIRO and we ended up with about 20% um, crude protein, chock-a-block full of magnesium, iron, calcium and zinc. It was a superfood. And uh, so um, I then concentrated on the selection for human consumption. And now the, the salt bush that uh, we provide to the nurseries is a highly selected and the only ones that are really yummy to eat, fresh or cooked. Uh, if you pick something in the wild... Uh, chances are you'll spit it out straight away. It's uh, very different. Wow, that's incredible, Mike. An incredible story that you've you've been able to discover that and, and now have it available for, for everyone. But I will I will stop interrupting. I'll let you go on with your, your choices there of, of what plants people should grow. <laughs> okay. Warrigal Greens, everyone knows this. And a little backstory on Warrigal Greens. It was the first Australian native food plant that was picked and it was actually picked by, uh, from from a white settler's point of view, picked by uh, Joseph Banks uh, when they first landed in Botany Bay. And uh, that's, of course, where it naturally grows on the beach. And um, uh, they used that to help cure the scurvy that they were suffering from at the time. Um, so that, that uh, goes way back. The beauty of Warrigal Greens is that it produces copious quantities of very viable seed which means that it is an annual but it will grow at any time of the year and in Adelaide it thrives it really does it's prostrate and tends to creep um, lovely big lush leaves um, 
people think that they can use it in salads without blanching, that's not correct. It really does need a blanch or a cook to be able to take the oxalants out of it um, and then it becomes very yummy. We've had it in so many different forms in, uh, in stir fries uh, and in uh, little dumplings and all those sorts of things and it's, it's really very yummy and it's good for you too. So warrigals is an easy one to grow and uh, you have it all year round and you won't have to buy another plant. It doesn't help us very much from a plant <laughs> supply point of view, but um, no, being honest, it, it'll be there for years. Um, it'll keep popping up and you just let it grow where it yeah. wants to grow and harvest it. Um, the next one is muntries. Muntries are a South Australian um, bush food from down in the southeast normally grows in the sand hills behind the, uh, uh, the seashore and uh, it produces massive quantities of what tastes and looks like small apples, tiny apples, clusters. And so you, they, they produce a lot of fruit, particularly if you can put it up on a trellis of some sort or a fence or whatever. But it normally is prostrate. If you let it roam prostrate across rocks and down uh, banks and things, it, it'll reward you with an amazing display of fluffy white flowers in spring, in November. Then that they turn into these pinky orange fruits in March, just when there's not too much else around. And they happen to be one of the highest sources of antioxidants and anti-carcinogens of all vegetables in the world far above things like blueberries so you know if you're growing muntries you're going to be healthy mm, mm. that's number three number four bower spinach bower spinach or barilla uh, the aboriginal name is um a cousin of warrigal greens but instead of being an annual it is a perennial creeper and it grows again in the southeast of South Australia, in the sand hills underneath the uh, acacias, and it climbs up around the acacias, and that's where it gets its name, bower spinach, because it, cre it creates these bowers that kangaroos will hide in and sleep during the day, and that's how it got its name. But bower spinach, unlike warrigals, is very low in oxalates, which means you can use it in salads, stir-fries, fresh any time you like and the beauty is you've got it 12 months of the year loves growing in the winter grows very well in the summer in the shade and uh, you've always got a really good crunchy um, fresh leaf it's keeps its crunch even after being uh, stir fried you, you still get that form instead of like um, you know if you if you're growing uh, Western spinach to English spinach, um, when you when you cook it, it goes flat and often dark grey. Well, bower spinach keeps its form. So it's, it's a real replacement to English spinach. Um, then the last one of the top five would be finger limes. Of course, um, everyone should be aware of what a finger lime is these days. But they do produce very well in Adelaide, grow very well in Adelaide, and uh, you'll have enough finger limes to freeze down for the whole year uh, from a couple of couple of small trees. No problems at all. 
And, mm. uh, of course, finger limes are a delightful flavour, terrific on oysters. Um, but <laughs> they're, they're also great in tea. You know, if you uh, blend uh, finger limes with Australian rosella flowers um, and put them in a, a teapot, you, you'll be amazed what a yummy tea that is. Wow, there won't be too many uh, plants that you could say go great in tea and with oysters. <laughs> That's an incredible <laughs> recommendation. Now, Mike, on the text line, we're just getting people asking just for the spelling of these things. So your first sure. um, variety is just saltbush. Uh, oh, it's old man, old man saltbush. Old man saltbush. Yeah, there, there's a, a lot of saltbushes, so old man saltbush would be the variety. Okay, number two is warrigal greens. That is that W A double R I G A L. Yes. Okay, muntries, M U N T R I E S. I'm pretty sure is the third. Yes. Now bower spinach. How is that spelt? As it sounds, B O W E R. Spinach or Barilla, did you say is the Aboriginal or word? Or Barilla, yeah, B A R R I L A. Okay, and finally, finger limes. So, if you're making notes, <laughs> you've got the five <laughs> now. Our special guest is Mike Quornby, talking with our special guest, Talkback Gardener Brett Draper, about growing these wonderful Australian native bush foods in your own garden. I'll hand back to you, Brett. Sure. Now, Mike, um, you've, you've mentioned that, that some of these varieties, for instance, um, uh, grow um, in the southeast region of our state. But if you were looking at growing them um, in your own garden, what sort of things would you need, consi- need to consider, like things maybe like the, the location or is soil type a, um, um, something that, that you should be looking at? Um, and could you grow them, for instance, in pots or raised beds? Yeah. Um, drainage is the operative word. With Australian natives, they they are particularly these these selections. They're used to a, a Mediterranean style uh, sort of climate where you have a bit of rain and then you have long periods of dry. And uh, so drainage, they do not like wet feet. Um, most of them don't like severe frosts, um, but if they do, they will come back usually. Um, after the frost but drainage is the operative thing as far as soil so putting them in a pot of course you a, a good quality potting mix you'll have no problems with uh, with growing any of these things uh, they will need to be repotted um, uh, into bigger pots as they get um, pot pound etc like any other plant things like your warrigal greens they do tend to be hungry so they will take a lot of nutrients out of the soil in a pot and therefore um, it's a good idea to uh, pot on with a new batch of, uh, of um, potting mix and take the excess uh, mm. root system off, you know, and, in the usual manner. Yeah, and, and with the potting mix, Mike, you've said a good quality premium mix. Would, would you need yes. to use something like an, an, a native potting soil or just a normal premium no, potting no, soil? No, no, none of the Australian bush foods as such are proteaceae, and so they're not sensitive to phosphorus. Um, in fact, the ones near the shore, of course, are used to the sea, which has quite a bit of phosphorus, and the uh, and fish and, and seaweed and stuff, which is quite high in phosphorus. So, no, um, an ordinary MPK uh, fertiliser doesn't hurt any of these uh, plants at all. And your normal standard potting mix for vegetables uh, is just fine. Oh, that's terrific. So it's a lot easier than what, what you might, what a lot of people might think. Then they don't really yeah. have that many special requirements other than a reasonable sunny position and, and, and well-drained soils. 
That's right. Now, as far as the sun is concerned, um, all of the ones I've mentioned there uh, in that top five can handle the sun and particular saltbush. It loves, uh, you know, a northwesterly sort of aspect where it gets the afternoon sun, you know, a tin um, tin fence or something like that, you know, that's mm. really quite hot. Uh, saltbush thrives in the heat because, of course, it comes from the outback. Yeah. Well, Mike, look, it's been wonderful to speak to you today and we thank you very much um, for all of your knowledge. Um, um, look, there are, there are so many different varieties out there on, on the market, but uh, you have certainly helped us in selecting what would be the top five for, for people yeah. to grow. And I guess if people are wanting more information, they can pop along um, to the local independent garden centre and ask what varieties um, are there and, um, and people will be able to help them um, with their selection. So, Mike, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. It's Mike, been wonderful. Mike, you'll always be the man with the palate of cattle um, after today's conversation, but you've got <laughs> a lot of people that are very interested and, and some that are already doing it just on the text line so that you can hear the feedback. Um, Favourite bush food, munchries, great ground cover, low water needs, eat fresh or make jams, desserts and sauces, says one texter. Yep. This person says, my Warrigal greens grow crazy and the chooks love them too, which is another That's benefit. Right. Um, uh, how easy are native bananas to grow, asks Sarah from Ireland. Well, we don't want to go down that rabbit hole today, but easy or not easy? Well, it depends on which which uh, native bananas you're talking about. There is a bush uh, plant called bush banana, uh, which is a uh, creeper, and uh, it, grow, it has a fruit a bit like mm. a small avocado. Um, but there is a native banana which grows in Queensland, which I would think is relatively difficult in Adelaide to grow. Right. Okay, so be careful on that. And yeah. Pam from Happy Valley would like to know, do you need to grow two-finger limes to get fruit, i.e. are they self-pollinating? No, self-pollinating, no problems. Great. And everybody's been asking, where do we get them? Well, you've said go go to your independent um, uh, garden centres and talk to them about it. And, and I guess are there, na- there would be native Australian bush uh, food experts around. I, I don't know if there are websites you can point us in the direction of, Mike. Mm, not really. Unfortunately, that's that's. There's not a lot there. Mm. Um, uh, we uh, in the past, before we uh, retired, had uh, a large uh, sort of website with all that information on, um, but that's no longer there. So I can't. Apart from going to your your local um, independent garden centre, and uh, each of the plants in the display that's there will have descriptions on how to grow and what they're good for and all that sort Wonderful. Of thing. Thanks so much, Mike. We've uh, really been fascinated by the conversation. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks, yeah, bye. Mike Cornby. Um, and uh, thank you to Brendan on the text line. says, I have medium berries, munchries, Davidson plums, finger limes, old man saltbush, warrigal greens and native guava all growing in my backyard in South Plimpton and they are thriving. Well, Brett, that's all the commendation you need, really. Isn't it, it is. Wow, what a what what a collection! What more could you want? Exactly. And Sue in Clemsig says there's a patch of what we assume in is remnant salt bush on the Linear Park. Um, are you aware of it? And is it old man salt bush? Well, I think you have to be careful, don't you? I think it's probably best to just make sure you go and get the right plant, the edible version, because there are lots of salt bushes around. Mm.
Correct, at, yeah. yeah. And Emily in Port Augusta says, Arid Lands Botanic Gardens have bush bananas for sale right now. Thank you very ah, much for all of those texts. We're getting back to our regular talkback garden. We've got Rosalind, Colette and Katrina next. You can join them on 1300 222 with Brett Draper. Talkback Gardening with Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Gee, to be a pretty bad Talkback Gardening if you only got advice from me because I'm a terrible gardener. Luckily, we've got Brett Draper in the chair today. Rosalind is at Netherby. Welcome, Rosalind. And what you've got a question about a pear tree. Yes, well, two questions, please. Um, I want to plant a, a capital ornamental pear tree can I do that now or do I wait until end of winter spring um, Rosalind do you already have the tree no you don't okay look you you could plant it now if need be because what will be available at the moment will be um, a, a potted variety um, with an established root system um, Bearing in mind that your um, ornamental pears um, are deciduous, so once they lose their leaves and, and become dormant, um, you can plant them through right through that period as well without setting them back in any way. But if you've got uh, a tree in a pot which you'd like to plant out now, providing you prepare the soil um, uh, appropriately and make sure that it's got some good uh, moisture uh, there and you just plant... Um, the tree without disturbing the roots too much when you put them in. There won't be any setback um, and it will establish um, um, just as well as if you were doing it in the winter months when it's dormant, um, um, if that makes sense. I guess the big thing at the moment will be the, the making sure that the, the when you plant it that it's getting sufficient moisture f- um, to make sure that it doesn't dry out. Yes. All right. So are you saying that you can... You can plant them through the winter because they are deciduous. You can yeah, really plant you, them any time. You, you, well, you can, you can really. But now, I mean, I wouldn't normally rec- recommend that you plant them in the middle of summer, for instance, when we're likely to have, you know, sort of heat wave, you know, 40 to, um, plus degree days. But that looks like those conditions have now passed. So you could quite um, um, happily plant them now. Um, and often in the winter months of the year, you will find them um, in um, nurseries as a bare root tree, for instance, where um, they have been um, dug, um, um, you know, and, and you can plant them as a bare root specimen. But if they've already got a root system established on them, um, um, by planting them with an established root system, you get a bit of a head start, if you like, because they don't have to establish quite as much new root in your garden. So they will power away much quicker. Well, won't any plant I buy from a nursery have an established root system? At the moment, it will now, absolutely, yes, yep. But it, but it's the same in winter, though, won't it? Or... No, if it's if it's been if it's a bare root tree, it will have been growing um, uh, basically in a paddock in a in a line, and the plants will be, will have been growing um, really closely together. So the root system on a bare root tree. Um, is considerably smaller. In fact, it, it's likely to be probably only, you know, some very short roots, maybe only 30 or 40 centimetres, um, and it may be only a handful of them on, on the tree, whereas a, a potted specimen will actually have quite an established root system that it will be able to draw from. All right, well, it sounds to me like it's best to plant it now so that I get its best chance 
That's uh, it'll be a little ahead, so it'll take off quicker in spring. I would, absolutely, and the weather is beautiful for okay. doing that at the moment. All right, and can you please tell me how to prepare the soil? It's clay soil. Yes, okay, so um, like, like all plants, um, uh, um, drainage is the key. So with clay soils, we would always recommend, if you can, getting hold of um, some gypsum, um, and some um, organic matter and incorporating um, that into the soil prior to planting. And always, if possible, and I know it can be difficult with a clay soil because especially at this time of the year, they can be quite hard to dig, but to try and dig twice as wide as what you need because uh, to allow for the roots to be able to spread out and give you good establishment. Um, gypsum you can incorporate into the soil anywhere up to about one kilo per square metre. And with organic matter like a compost or a soil improver, you probably want to look at, if you can, working in about 20% of the volume. So depending on, on how big of area that you're wanting to prepare. Great job for this weekend, Rosalind. Hope it goes well for you. Thank you very much for the call. Um, getting a great response to Mike Quamby's discussion with you, Brett. Uh, this person just says, Mike Quamby, brilliant. Uh, this texter says, wattle seeds and lemon myrtle are some of my favourite bush foods. I make wattle seed ice cream and lemon myrtle cheesecake. Yum. <laughs> <laughs> We both want to eat that right now. Kwandongs are great, says another texter. Add your name to it if you possibly can. Um, Laura from Warradale says, I make warrigal greens and ricotta cannelloni from our homegrown greens. It's delicious. Oh, wow. I'd like a few invites, I reckon. Yeah, dinner. me too. Um, and this person says, please mention State Flora at Belair, specialising in only natives and low in cost. That's great. Well, let's go to Clearview now. Colette, you've got a locust tree. What would you like to do with that this weekend? Good morning, Deb. Good morning, Brett. Um, Good morning. Well, the, the problem is, of course, now I've got to buy a munty plant as well because, you know, why not? Um, now, my locust tree was in a pot for a year we plant it in the ground. It's now two and a half metres tall. It's beautifully shaped. It's been pruned to shape. Mm-hmm. Um, does it fruit on new or old wood? What do we do? Yeah, look, they, they, they do fruit on, on the, the new wood or the extremities of, of the plants. So have you had fruit on it yet? No, no. Right, okay. And the plant's looking nice and healthy? Oh, it's spectacular. Right, okay. Um, um, it's the sort of plant where you really only need to prune for, for, for shape and for structure. So um, is it in a situation where it's, it's out of proportion or is it something that you no, need to prune? Or the shape is now perfect. Okay, so yeah. Look, you know, it's yeah. got it. It's, it's a perfect shape tree. Okay, so look, you, you will find that, that coming up um, that they will actually um, fruit on the ends of those new branches. And if it's looking nice and healthy, um, that, that, that's obviously a good start. So I would think in the coming season you will actually um, start to get that to flower and, um, and, and then get some fruit set from there. So I'm guessing I've missed this year's season, never having had one before. Yeah, that, yeah that's correct, you have, yes. Yeah. So you will generally find that they will... Um, um, be flowering um, in in the sort of the spring months of the year, and then they'll set fruit from there. So it probably starts probably late, well, late winter or going into September, um, depending yeah. on the conditions each year. So yeah, it will be this coming spring. Excellent. Thank you so much, Brett. Thanks, Colette, for the call. Always lovely to hear from you. Katrina is in your Adler. Now you've got a split pecan tree. What happened? 
Uh, it was the winds, hello, both of you. It was the winds a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's a young tree. It's about um, five weeks, uh, five years old and had grown very, very well. Um, and um, it's, uh, we had some pretty uh, damaging winds and I came out and found that the trunk, which had always had two trunks about uh, 40 centimetres um, above the ground, had split um, and then in the falling down, it had actually split back some of the other branches as well. Um, I've cut off most of the large part that split. And my mm -hmm. question is, should I attempt to bring the split parts together um, or should I simply just prune the, the split? The tree's now quite, as you can imagine, quite unequal. Yes. Um, yeah. And I've cut it back, like it was about five metres tall, and I've right. cut it back um, to probably uh, three, three and a half metres um, on the side that's um, not been split. But I don't know whether to try and get the two, uh, the, well, there's sort of three main parts that are split away from each other, whether I should try and bind that together or whether I should just leave it or whether I should actually cut it right back to mm. the where it's split off. So, Katrina, these splits are on branches or are they the trunk of the tree? The trunk, unfortunately. Yeah, they're, the they're, trunk they're bifurcated. Up. The trunk bifurcated and, um, and then... Um, another uh, sort of bifurcation, another sort of maybe 10, 20 centimetres up, and that's the big bit that's split, but it's actually split off the main trunk as well. Right, OK. So is it, is it just, when you say it's split on the main trunk, is it just split on the edge? Has it pulled some of the material out the side or is it, say, down the middle of, of, of the, the, the trunk? It's really much down the middle. It is down the middle, okay, yeah. Yep. Well, look, um, uh, it's oh, having it for that period of time and it's growing so well. It's 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 heartbreaking it when those just sort of things. To fruit. Yeah, yeah, that's oh. and that's always that's always the way as well. Just when they get to the point where they're starting to produce well, um, look, I, I think it. If it was me personally, I, I would I would be looking at it thinking, well, um, um. I'd, I'd like to try and save it if I can because you've put a lot of time and effort into that. Now, you, you, ideally, if you were going to bring them together, you probably should have done that um, pretty well straight away if you could, bringing them yeah. together and, and, and securing them um, to see whether that, that, would, that would help. But I would suggest maybe you need um, to just, and, and you've done a fair bit of that anyway, but reshape it to get as much balance as you can back into the tree. And, yes, unfortunately, you're going to lose you know, the ability for it to be able to produce. But I think it's probably worth trying to salvage um, uh, and see whether you can actually get it to, you know, to, to regrow from there. Um, I think it's worth giving it a go is what I'm saying. Um, right. And giving it a go, would you try and put it together or would you just leave it to sort itself out and just reduce the canopy? Yeah, I would definitely be reducing the canopy. I don't know, given that, because you said this happened a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't notice it for a, a, a few days. So I didn't, yeah. you know, even if I see it's good to know that if I see it ever again and it's happened soon, that I could actually try and bind it straight away. Yeah, that's right. You've got, got more chance of, uh, uh, you know, of the, and there being less opportunity for, for um, problems occurring if you can get them that, those wounds together um, straight away. So I think maybe at this, time, this, at this particular stage, just prune it to get it back into balance that's there with what you've got left. Um, and um, and clean up any material that you can that that might be damaged um, 
um, on the branches that are there and um, and then just see what comes from that. And look, you might find that down the track that it, it's it's not successful and you do have to replace it. And if that's the case, well, then so be it. But I think it's worth trying to to resurrect it as best you can now. Good luck, Katrina. It's heartbreaking when that happens. And thank you to the text. Oh, Marianne, who says, another benefit of finger limes is they are host to the dainty swallowtail butterfly. Just beautiful. I'm waiting on eight to emerge from their chrysalis. We'll come to Nanda, Melanie and Margie next. Talk Back Gardening with Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Our special guest, Talk Back Gardener, today is the wonderful Brett. Um, I just went completely brain. <laughs> Isn't that absolutely bizarre, Brett? I cannot believe it that uh, we've spoken a million times. Brett Draper. Brett Draper, Draper, yeah. Draper, well, like, I've only known you for about, you know, 20 years. Well, um, <laughs> although, Deb, it has been a while. We haven't seen each other face-to-face for quite some time. Oh, I know. That's COVID and we're, we're operating out of different places right now. And just to let you know that this texter says, two or more books by Neville Bonney give huge information um, about Australian native bush foods and they can be bought from the Australian Plant Society members. And the next big sale is the 9th and 10th of April at the Adelaide Showground. Ah, so thanks excellent. for that. Yeah. Send me through an email about that, please, at Adelaide Weekends at abc.net.au and we'll make sure that we get it in as well. Um, Nanda is called from Manningham. Now, what's happened to your petostrum, Nanda? Hi, uh, hey. Hello there, team. Uh, look, I've got a dozen of these things. Um, half of them have gone brown and they're, they're all two metres high. Um, yeah, they've all gone brown, so I'm not sure what I can do. Uh, yeah, we put some root rot to it. Help the soil drains well, so I don't know what to do. Okay, Nanda. So when you say they've gone brown, can you describe the brown to me that's on the plants? Is it uh, brown all over the leaves or on the edges of the leaves, the top of the plant? It's brown all over. So the way I describe it, the adjacent ones are 100% healthy. The ones in between, 50%, right? I don't know why. They've all gone brown all over. And, And so these are growing in a hedge, are they? They are, yes. Yeah, they're growing in a hedge. Okay. And when did you notice them going going brown? Is it is it happened um, like all, uh, very quickly, or has it been a, over a period of time, or over a period of maybe two to three months? And there's been progressively getting worse during that period of time. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Have you observed on the plants at all any sort of insect, any sort of little beetle, or anything on them at all? No, I haven't. I haven't. I yeah. I've dug through some of the soil. I, I don't. I haven't seen anything. So I, I went to a local gardener. They said I need to apply some root rot. Maybe try that. We I, have. And that didn't really do much. Right. Okay. Um. And so, uh, did they suggest that maybe because it, you think there might be a watering-related issue? Are they possibly getting too much water in that particular spot? That's what we found on the internet, and when we spoke to the gardener. Okay, so, so, but have, so have you checked the watering and dug into the soil to know what's happening in terms of the soil moisture? Yeah, the soil's not moist. It has regular drainage. There's no clay soil. There's nothing that should, like, hold water when you water it. Right, okay. So it's not doesn't sound like it's likely to then be a watering issue. And, and actually, how are you watering them? Are they being watered on an irrigation or...? They, they are being watered on an irrigation, yes. Right, but, okay. I mean, I, I control them, you know. Yeah. So some, sometimes I thought there's not enough water, so I've watered during the very hot days twice a day. 
Yes. Other day, I just let the irrigation do it every couple of days. Yes, yes. Look, there is a there is a a, a little beetle that affects pittosporums, and it's commonly called a, a pittosporum bug. And that's why I was asking you whether you've had a bit of a look on the plant at all to see whether there's been any sort of insect activity on there. And they can actually attack um, certain plants in a in a hedgerow, um, and they're they're sap sucking um, pests. Um, which can do quite a bit of damage um, when their numbers build up um, on the plant. So you might sometimes find one or two um, on the plant and they don't do much damage at all. But when their numbers build up, they can do considerable damage and they can spread from one plant to the next in a hedge, um, particularly that's, a, that's adjacent to there. Now, um, if if I would suggest maybe if you haven't checked that thoroughly, maybe to have a look to see whether that might be. And they won't necessarily be on the ones that now have gone brown. They might be moving towards the ones on the extremities of that, that section, which are, are green. And if that's the case, you you would then need, need to control them because it will spread on there. Now, with the plants that have gone brown, are the leaves dry? Um, have they gone like brown and dry or are they ground and, and sort of still supple? Uh, they're dry. Look, you you press onto them, they just fall mm. off. Okay, that doesn't doesn't sound good. Dead. Have you, <laughs> yeah, have you have you scraped the bark at all with a um, on the trunk to see whether there's any still green um, layer underneath? Oh, I haven't tried that. No, look, well, it'd be worth just having a look at that. Um, getting a pair of secateurs or a knife um, and just just um, uh, scraping the bark to see if it's still green underneath. Because if it is still green underneath, there's a chance that they will actually um, reshoot. Um, but if it's brown, you may have actually lost them. Um, um, but going back to if it's green, you could actually then just trim them back um, and do a regular uh, seaweed-based plant tonic like a sea mungus or a sea sole on a fortnightly basis um, and give them um, a, a light feed with an organic-based fertiliser maybe at half the recommended rate, but it sounds like you may have lost those ones. I have to say, Nanda, the number of calls we've had of people who have planted pitosporum uh, Pitosporin uh, hedges that have exactly that same problem are legend. There are so many of them. So I don't know if there's a particular problem. Are there better hedges to plant in South Australia that may not suffer from that, Brett? Yeah, and you're right, Deb. Sometimes, um, for, and, 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 I, and I can't put my finger on the reason exactly, Pitosporums can sometimes just, just for whatever reason, just give up. Um, and there are some other um, some other uh, good varieties. Like there's a, a lovely variety of of lily pilly, which is a um, narrow variety called Backyard Bliss, which is on the market, um, and that seems to grow um, and perform particularly well. And the good news is that it's silid resistant, so it doesn't get the little bumps on the leaves. And and many people have um, where they've had pittosporums, which have um, uh, they've had issues with have replaced them with the backyard bliss and have had great success. So that might be one worth looking at. Yeah, it might be food for thought, Nanda. Thank you very much for the call. Melanie's got a passion fruit question. Hi, Melanie in Welland. Hi, Deb and Brett. Yes, I've got a passion fruit. It's about 18 months old. I was hoping for fruit this summer, but all I got was one little flower. Um, it's it's grown magnificently. It's all over the water tank. Yes. But I just want to know when to cut it back, how much to cut it back, and what I can do to help it uh, flower and have fruit next season. Okay. Yeah. So look, young young passion fruits will grow really, really vigorously, which obviously you've experienced. Um, yeah. And whilst they're in that growth mode um, and establishing their roots and, and letting them get as, um, uh, growing like uh, in the first couple of years without 
uh, fruit is probably a good idea because you can get a nice, healthy, established root system. But from now on, what you could start to do is start to tip prune. And I assume you've got tendrils on there which might be coming out from the passion fruit. Yes, yeah. Look, it, yeah. it's basically cover, covering the whole the whole water tank. So it's the whole about, tank, yeah. You know, two and two and a half meters high, and it's yeah, pretty big. Yeah. So, so what you can do now is go around and, and remove um, um, some of those tendrils, and it's uh, you know up to about twenty percent, if you like, of 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 the vine that's on there. And what that will do is actually um, change the hormone balance in the plant and then it'll start to then think about going into flowering and then fruiting mode rather than into growth mode. So it, it basically it's, it stops it from putting all of that energy into the growth and it puts it into then into the production. So it will then mean, and unfortunately not for this year, but it will mean for next season coming up that you will get some fruit. And so when should I do that? When should I do from that now. pruning? Do it now. Oh, now. Yes, and, yep. and with fertilising, um, should I do that? Do some yep. now? Autumn, or? Yeah, no, definitely. An autumn food is ideal. Um, um, what sort of food yep. have you been using on it so far? Um, I think I just used um, rooster. Poo. Yeah, one of one of those organic um, chicken pelletised yep. type products. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, so. that sounds yep. better. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, just so going forward, what you might want to look at using is one of the ones um, that were based on those chicken manure pellets, but are designed for fruit uh, or vegetables. Um, but particularly yep. the ones that are designed for fruit, because they've got um, the a, a good um, balance um, of nitrogen, nitrogen, phosphorus, and most importantly, potassium. And the potassium or potash that's in there will what be will help with the flowering and then the fruit set. So um, there's quite a few on the market. They're sometimes branded as citrus and fruit fertilisers, but an organic-based one would yeah. be ideal. Okay, great. Okay. Thanks, Melanie. Thanks That's your much, Saturday sorted for you. <laughs> Thanks very much for calling in. And Margie from Harndorf, going back to hedges that maybe aren't performing very well, you've got the same problem, Margie. What sort of hedge have you got? I've got a... <laughs> Oh, is that uh, uh, your line is very poor there? Did you say pit pitosperant? I can't Sorry, speak can today. You, can you hear me now? Very badly. So, what's your problem, Margie? In a nutshell. Okay, so I have thrips in the viburnum hedge, and I know that on other um, on when I got an email, which was your email, um, the Talkback Gardening email, it said to use Natrosoap or Ecofend, mm-hmm. but I've used, because before I read that, I went to the local gardening shop and they said, use pest oil. So I've used pest oil twice and nothing has changed. So I'm wondering if I should swap to one of the others or not. Yep, Margie, I I would be. Pest oil would also be okay. You won't get quite as good a... um, um, uh, control with them, but it will certainly control some of the thrips that are on there. Um, I was actually going to mention as as part of some of our garden problems that thrips are really, really bad in gardens at the moment, and especially yeah. on viburnums. Yeah. Um, I think we would have five or six people a day come into um, our garden centre with a photo or a sample in a plastic bag um, with thrip damage on their plants. Um, but um, your Natrosoap, um, which is a potassium, um, and your Ecofen, for that matter, are, are potassium-based, soap-based products, which are organic, but they do work um, quite well in controlling the thrips that are on, on the plant. Now, 
Um, you need to just make sure that you don't spray them on a day um, uh, above 30 degrees if possible. But yeah. the thing that when you spray them and, and, and control them is that the damage that they've done to the leaves remains on the leaves. And a lot of people think that they haven't actually controlled them um, and you've still got this silvery grey appearance on the leaves. When in actual fact, if you've given them a couple of sprays at least two weeks apart and maybe even three sprays two weeks apart to control them, um, you will have actually knocked the population on, on the head and then it will only be once the new growth comes through or you cut out the damaged growth that you actually see it improve. So, um, Margie, swap to your one of your, your other products like Natrosoap, um, give it another good thorough spray and on the back of the leaves wherever possible in case they're hiding behind there um, and you will be able to control them and then let's hope next year or next season we don't have quite as bad a problem. Thanks, Margie. Good luck with that. If you haven't won a magazine from us in the last month, then you can call now on 1300 222 891 if you'd like to win an ABC Gardening Australia magazine. Talk Back Gardening with Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Our Talk Back Gardener today is Brett Draper and uh, Beverly says it's great hearing Brett on the program. Thank you very much for that, Beverly. And um, before, well, no, let's go straight to Jock in Furl. Oh, no, I will say our winners for the uh, magazines, Steve at Tarawi, he's grabbed one and jumped in there. Jock is in Furl. You would like to know when to pick pears from your tree, Jock? Yeah, the reason for this is, we have a, um, a pear tree that we've had probably about four years. This is the first year that it's a, it's a William Bartlett. This is the first year that it's actually given us a lot of pears. The trouble is, I've gone to pick them. I've usually gone to pick them when they're um, sort of yellowing, and uh, and they're rotten. A lot of them are rotten. Uh, so I wonder if I should pick them when they're actually green. Be I, I to be honest, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure. But from what I would um, do, from you know, thinking about if if I was in that situation, if they were well formed and they had good size, and um, they and maybe just before, you know, you observe their colour just starting to change, um, I would actually um, I would actually be picking them, and then you can ripen them um, and enjoy them before they get to that period of time. Um, I'm sure there's there's people out there will have had more experience without that uh, about that, but I would just look at it and, and look when they're looking nice and big and plump, and just before they're about to change, pick them, um, and then that way you can you can get um, you can enjoy them before they get to that point where um, before they're rotten. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Oh, okay, great, easy done. Thanks, Chop, for the call, and congratulations also also to Annette at Tea Tree Cully who has won the other magazine. Steve from Tarawi, can you please give us a call back on one three hundred triple two eight nine one so we can get the magazine out to you? Well, it's been a jam packed morning, and we haven't been able to get to all of the callers. And sorry for those that we didn't get to, but thank you so much for calling in and sending through your very interesting texts on native bush tucker. Brett Draper, it's always a uh, pleasure to have you um, on deck with us and what are you going to be doing in the garden this weekend? Well I've actually done a little bit of work during the week, I had a couple of days off but I'm, I'm getting ready to, to, to plant um, some winter veggies so um, I've, as the tomatoes are starting to 
to finish and other um, things like zucchinis and that, I'm preparing the soil ready to plant. So uh, it's, it's, it's exciting, really, but uh, it's very dry, so the sprinkler will be on tonight. <laughs> yes, uh, we're in autumn. Lots of watering is going to need to happen. I think we're only getting a few little uh, drops a bit later in the week. Well, Brett, thank you very much for being our Talkback Gardener this morning. Look forward to catching up with you again in the future. It's been my pleasure, and it's actually gone very quickly this morning. It flies, doesn't it? I'll say it because John's not here to say it. Until next week, good gardening.